2: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello!
1: That was a very big hello. Well, I thought I'd
3: try and throw a bit of energy at it because I was worried that I'd freaked you out. Why? Because last week I saw your bike in the wild chained up to a fence and I took a picture of it and sent it to
1: you it was a bit peculiar
3: it was outside the place where you go swimming and i went and stood on there's a bridge where you can look at the pond and i thought i would really love to see his little head bobbing up and down i thought maybe i could throw him some bread like you used to with ducks before you realize you shouldn't really do that with ducks but i couldn't see you anywhere no um
1: were you submerged is that why i couldn't see you had you gone under you scuba diving in that pond now Oh, no, no, definitely not scuba diving. Actually, the zapper. Um, I, there's been a sort of steward's inquiry into the zapper because basically, for some reason, their temperature gauge disappeared, mm. and so we were reliant on the zapper.
3: Hang on, are you saying?
1: Are you saying that your own personal zapper very briefly became the official zapper? Uh, well, it, not the official zapper, but rather than Dan making it up, you must have felt very proud. I was. The zapper had been promoted. <laughs> Um, And how have you been otherwise? I've been good. I've got something to tell you about. Go on.
3: Rachel, our content producer, went to a dinner party at the weekend. The board game Articulate came out. Now, have you ever played this game? No. I'm not sure that I've ever played it, but my understanding of it is uh, you you draw a card and it has a list of things on it and you have to try and describe it to uh, your fellow team members without actually saying what's on the card. Are you with me?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And guess who or what was featured? You. You know it was you, don't you? You know you were on this card. Was well, actually on the card of the game. Yeah, I'm, I've got a photograph of it in front of me, so we know you're on it. I'm just trying to see Oh, yeah, they did spell your name right. What if I uh, try and describe the other things that are on the card and see if you get them?
1: Are the six things related to me or not? No. You're... I feel like I'm not being a very good interlocutor in this story, I, I? I've
3: never played Articulate either, but I'm guessing... It's basically
1: you say category, politics, and then can't. I come oh, up. Well,
3: there is, a P, or... there is a P next to it, so I wonder if that is politics, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. or
1: it could be podcasting.
3: Possibly so, yeah. <laughs> um, my understanding of this game, it's, it's a board game, and the, the, square, yep. the squares are different colours, and the colour yep. you land
1: on corresponds to a category on the card. Sorry, can we just let's be clear about this? That, you, you're saying all this because Rachel just explained it to you off <laughs> mic. I mean, just my understanding of the game, my foot, <laughs> you, make, you know. Don't draw attention to the edit. Let's level with the listeners it's here. It's like, like t- my you- understanding of the game, you know, it's like. You know. <laughs> it's because you, you you're always wandering off when we're recording. Well, good job I wandered off. Anyway, okay, keep going. I'm, I'm sticking with you, although it's hard. Okay. Um, so it could be uh, yeah. places and
3: animals yeah. and, and so yeah. on. Um, Timbuktu. No, ready? Yeah. It wasn't built in a day. Rome. It's like a zoo, but for fish. Aquarium. If you are a lawyer uh, representing somebody, you are blank for them.
1: Counsel. Council.
3: Uh, no, it's like representing, but you're kind of representing their interests. It doesn't just apply to... If you're uh, a lawyer, or, yeah. you it are... It could be... Advocate. En- yeah, and advocate. It, as a verb? Uh, advocacy. In the- Advocating. Yeah, okay. No. Um, yeah. It's a type of bird that in Star Wars, you would say the
1: Millennium... Bug. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's not an eagle. It's very fast. A peregrine is one type of it. Falcon. And you could be said to be fighting for a just cause. Yeah, there we go. I think we make a very good team at this, apart from the Millennium Mm. one, which went a little awry.
1: Is there a Millennium Falcon? In Star Wars, yes. I'm sorry. I thought you'd seen it. Well, maybe I had, but it was a long time ago. Famously, in a galaxy far, far away. I think
3: maybe this is quite a good game, actually. Yeah, maybe you'll invite me to one of your dinner parties and we can play it.
1: Don't get your hopes up. I'm not going to invite you to dinner, but just... (laughs) (laughs) Now...
3: We should explain to people that you're not going to be around for the interview section of the podcast this week. So we no, I'm sorry. I was, uh, I,
1: was, I was AWOL in the House of Commons, sorry. And I feel that um, the podcast has
3: become almost like a little therapy session for some of the insanity of what's going on in your day job at the moment. How's
1: it been this week? I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. I was sitting at Prime Minister's Questions. I have watched many Prime Minister's Questions. I was part of Prime Minister's Questions. I have never seen... The Tory bench is so quiet, I thought that Liz Truss was just totally at sea. I walk around the House of Commons and I I can't help being stopped by Tory MPs saying how awful everything is for them. I mean, I've never, honestly, I've never had this experience before. So they're not saying to you, well, it could be worse. It could have been chaos with Ed Miliband. No, I mean, they're just literally sort of heads in their hands. Wow. Should we talk about what you talked about while I was watching the Trust a mess in the House of Commons. Yes. This week, and
3: it's it's a real shame you're missing out on it, because I think you'd enjoy the conversation. In, in fact, it was your idea. We're talking about social housing. Before I get into what we'll be covering on the episode, do you want to tell us why, what inspired you to uh, to do an episode
1: on that this week? Well, look, as you know, I was on this Shelter Social Housing Commission three or four years ago with... Um, Saeed Avasi and Jim O'Neill, both of whom were Tory ministers, had been Tory ministers. I think it's such an unaddressed issue, the housing crisis, and governments of both parties haven't built enough homes. There's such a crying need, and it speaks to so much of the daily difficulties people face. Everybody knows somebody who's affected by the housing crisis. And as well as the issue of building housing, it's the quality of social housing, what kind of service tenants are getting. This is really, really important. Yeah, so people might remember we had a really good discussion about the history of council housing.
3: I think it was two or three years ago on episode 69. And today, social housing is often little more than an afterthought. So we wanted to reinvigorate some of that progressive and optimistic spirit by talking to architect Peter Barber, who has won awards for his social housing projects. We're also going to take a lightning trip to Vienna to talk to former deputy mayor Maria Vasilakou. And then finally, from Vienna to Brighton to find out about how some residents are taking matters into their own hands. And we're going to be talking to Martin Holmes to learn more about the alternative model of housing cooperatives.
1: What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff?
3: Saturday night, went to uh, the theatre to see Mark Lewison, who is, I think, the world's preeminent Beatles historian, give a three-hour talk about the Beatles, specifically in the year 1962. Wow, three hours. Fidel Castro length. The level of detail. He has researched the make and model of alarm clock that their manager, Brian Epstein, bought for them to try and get them to be more professional and turn up to gigs on time. And he'd even made a sound recording of what that alarm clock sounded like when the bell was ringing.
1: Sounds brilliant. It really was. Do you wish I'd invited you? No. Um, <laughs> uh, while you were doing that, yes. I... This is my reason And this is your careful. reason to be yeah. yep. I had done Park Run. I had gone swimming cold water swimming and then i decided what were we going to eat and so i decided to make a i think it's sheet pan broccolini and feta one tray bake and and then we had it with and it was called onions and stuff and then the choice was either to have it with pasta or with farro do you know what farro is Yes, I do. It's it's not quite it's like, like a Bordeaux thing. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. And actually, I didn't tell you this, but you know I had developed this recipe, which was um, not developed. Developed this like Hester Blumenthal sorry, sorry, in sorry, his sorry. kitchen laboratory. Yeah, okay, okay. okay. It was a Freudian <laughs> uh, A New York Times recipe, which was the tofu and uh, thing bok choy thing, which I yes, made yes. successfully for a dinner party. I made it the first time and it was a bit rubbery. I made it the second time, it was good. And then I made it the third time and it was... Mm. So I kind of... I'd slightly fallen off the bike, so I decided I need to get back on the bike. Anyway, it was, it was quite successful. I actually took a picture of it. My phone has now run out of batteries, but I took a picture of it to send to you. Oh, I love your food photography. I know. Maybe one day I'll even cook you my food rather than just sending you my photography.
2: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
1: Well, to start the conversation and
3: give us a bit of background and bring us up to speed on where we're at with social housing here in the UK, With me now is Director of Peter Barber Architects. Pete Barber, hello. Hi. Thanks for coming round. Let's start with the history of social housing. When did the state get involved in housing in this country, and and who was that for?
4: It kind of started at a very small scale at the beginning of the last century, and it was principally for the kind of working poor. But the the real push came in the inter- and post-war period, And the the extraordinary achievements of the post-war generation at a time when this country was broke, having just fought the war, we managed to build a health service and we were building 150,000 social homes a year. So that by 1977, nearly half the population lived in housing. Yeah, social
3: the, the number I saw was 42% by yeah. 79, which yeah. is
4: phenomenal. Just to bring that into focus for people, what, what is that number today? It's nearer 10%. And, you know, that's a consequence of a succession of government policies, of governments of both complexions, but starting with the 1977 Housing Act, where Hasseltine and Thatcher introduced Right to Buy, Uh, and they effectively prevented local authorities from building any more social housing.
3: Let's just talk about, I guess, the underlying principles of that massive post-war house-building programme. So you mentioned there was an early form of social housing for for very poor people when when slum housing was looked at in the earliest part of the century. How was the approach to social housing and council
4: housing different? Who was it for? Well, I think it became much more widespread in the post-war generation so it was for you know a very significant proportion of the population it wasn't a kind of last resort thing it was a it there was a kind of a generosity uh, in the kind of welfare state which was extended to uh, uh, as i say half the population
3: when Right to buy was introduced what were the caveats and conditions with regards to replenishing council
4: houses and social housing stock. Well, well, it it never works because if you sold a house at a discount, you can't rebuild it. And so whatever the rules which say that right to buy receipts need to be reinvested, it's never enough. And so, you know, the outcome is is what we've seen now and the the demise of social housing in terms of numbers at least.
3: And do you think that demise, because it's probably not just about pure numbers, there'll be other factors as well, but is what has moved the public perception from the situation you're describing in the late 70s, where it's a very valued part of the social makeup, Mm. to now where it's not something to aspire to in a certain way?
4: Well, it depends who you talk to. I know people who are really happy in their social homes. And, you know, the fact that vast quantities of um, social housing have been flogged off to the private sector and eagerly kind of consumed and bought as investment, as rental income, demonstrates that these buildings are, um, some of them, fantastic. And some of the best housing in this country from the last 100 years is the social housing we've built. Yeah. And, and, and particularly, you know, currently, I think the best stuff that's getting built is, is being built for the most part by sometimes small developers who are doing a mixture of social housing and private housing, but by local authorities. And some of our best clients are local authorities. And, you know, they're not answerable to a shareholder. They still have, you know, the the residue of kind of welfare state mentality and ideology, which means that they want it to be really, really good.
3: I phoned my dad this morning. Him him and my mum both grew up in council houses. And we we didn't. We were in like a little end Terrace house. Yeah. And I said, given that you grew up in council housing, wh- why was it so important for you to buy a house? Yeah. And he, he talked about it in terms of it, it being like almost like a savings account, which, of course, now yeah. we see like a real mutated version with that, with totally. the, the way property investment has been. Yeah. So that suggests like a, a failing in other bits of the economy and, and sort of future planning rather than in social housing itself. Now that's an a- one anecdote, but yeah. I wondered if there was maybe something else. No, in I
4: think that that really gets to the heart of it actually, because what has happened in government policy in the, the last 50 years is housing being an investment vehicle. And it, it operates at the level of your dad, but it also operates at the level of pension funds who come in and uh, really a big sometimes global money comes in and just sweeps everything away and, and, and we see it all over London you know buildings being demolished uh, shiny new things going up often uninhabited because mm. they simply are an investment vehicle so as you say it's got really souped up now and, and we're really in a, a just completely dysfunctional kind of land economy particularly in the southeast of England and and also it has implications for the rest of the country of course. Scotland and Wales have ended the right to buy. We still have it, but they have ended it um, to good effect. But the other thing when we start to think about the rest of the country is that, um, and this will surprise a lot of people, there is no housing shortage. There isn't one. There are 400,000 empty homes in this country. Some of them, as I've said, are empty homes in London because they're just a sort of empty investment vehicle of some overseas fund. But a lot of them are in depopulated areas in our coastal towns and in the north of England uh, where there is no demand for housing. People have moved out. There are no jobs. So for me, the solution to the housing crisis is not really in in housing. It's in the idea of an interventionist government which encourages people and business back into those those areas because we don 't need to be building tons of housing it's there
3: you, you could even call that leveling up, could you well, you might want to, but you might think of another way for it.
4: <laughs> but um so, so it's a tricky thing to say, because I'm an architect. So it kind of puts me out of a job, really. Yeah. But, you know, those buildings need to be loved and looked after and hold terraces of, of housing in some towns, whole areas which have just deserted. But we could be going back there, we could be refurbishing those buildings, insulating them, double glazing them. And they're fantastic.
3: So when you hear there's a consensus that we need to build, I think the number is at least 90,000 homes a year. You're hearing an answer to the wrong question.
4: Well, I think there are so many vested interests. So, the housing industry, to use a kind of rather unpleasant word, it's how one of the big drivers for our economy. So everybody is kind of complicit in this myth that we need to be built, you know, move, you know, kind of pushing this forward and and, and, and so on. And I just think we need to just stop and think properly about this.
3: So then in the context of social housing, does that mean the government acquiring the type
4: of properties you're talking about? I am not quite sure what the best economic model would be for doing this. Whether it's actually encouraging business into these places or, or the government investing or creating business in these places or whether local authorities need to acquire these or compulsory purchase these properties which are lying derelict and do it themselves. I don't think the solution to the housing crisis is necessarily the housing itself. I think it's possibly other areas of policy which would bring people back to those places. I've been thinking about this thing called 8,000 Mile Island and it's an idea about our eight, we're quite unique in, the, in, in the, the, the ratio of our coastline to our landmass. We've got an 8,000-mile coastline, and off Brighton there is a thing called the Rampion wind farm. And the Rampion wind farm generates energy for 350,000 homes. If you had a hundred Rampion wind farms ranged around our coastline, we could generate enough energy for all of our domestic energy requirements and bring employment into all of these far-flung locations we've also got the biggest tides in the world outside of canada mm. off the coast of wales we've got five stories 15 meets five story tides so there is massive potential i mean i'm wondering off the How's no, no, bill- but it's, it's, it's a, but, interesting
3: because uh, I've been thinking about you yeah, know the potential importance of social housing hmm. in terms of a green transition, and we've talked so much on the podcast about the challenges around retrofitting. Yes, which obviously is a cost to new house building but it's not trying to make drafty old buildings conform to what we need by 2030 yeah. but what's interesting i guess is we started this conversation talking about a, a stock of council housing being depleted over the years by right to buy so i was expecting you as an architect to so say mm. we need to replace that and that's that's not your answer well that
4: was my view a couple of years ago but i think that the much bigger issue which has come into play in my mind which i've become aware of is these vast quantities of housing which exist which aren't in use?
3: Because there's a knock on effect of that, isn't there? If the economy becomes reliant on property and property development and speculation in the way that it has, because of the way the country is set up, there's a focus of that on the southeast anyway. The lack of social housing does feed into the wider problem in ways that you might not expect it to. Well, exactly.
4: Yeah, exactly.
3: So I wanted to ask you, your development, is it McGrath Road or McGrath Road?
4: Yeah, McGrath. McGrath yeah.
3: Um, it, it won the uh, reba Neve Brown Award in yeah. 2021 yeah. that celebrates best affordable housing. Mm. And a, a comment that I was struck by that the uh, judges made was that it projected optimism. Talk to me a little bit about that and the importance of that yeah. in
4: housing. Well, it's a, it's a project which, to some extent, about communal living. It's back-of-pavement terraced housing, uh, and in fact, it's back-to-back housing. So in the McGrath Road houses, there is no back garden. You have a little front area, and you have a roof terrace, uh, and your house comes right to the edge of the pavement. So it's a it's a project which is about kind of convivial, social kind of living. It wouldn't suit everybody, but for some people, you know, it's a wonderful way of living because it tends to encourage um, people to... See, see their neighbours, recognise their neighbours, perhaps perhaps actually say something to their neighbours in a way that might not happen in a tower block. So back-to-back housing is a very interesting type because it places a great deal of emphasis on the, the pavement, the street and your relationship with your neighbours. And I think that's something that fired up the imagination of the, the judges in that.
3: It's so interesting, and I, I noticed this looking in your website as well, like kind of echoes of what we might think of as traditional British architecture. Because if I think about social housing in other countries, we're going to talk about Vienna shortly, but maybe in parts of Germany or Mm. Scandinavia, successful social housing doesn't look like that. So I suppose I was wondering why that isn't replicated. In this country, and if that's down mm. to tradition. Well, I mean, it is
4: sometimes, but for me, I, I'm really fascinated by some some pre-modern ways of doing housing. So lots of our, our buildings don't look old-fashioned, but they employ old-fashioned types. So nobody's done back-to-back housing since the 1930s, and it was kind of discredited. Later modernist experiments in housing tended to reject the street as the basic building block of the city, and so you got more sort of object buildings, and we're all familiar with kind of tower blocks sitting in patches of grass, bits of concrete, uh, and in my view, you know, not the best way to organise urban space. Um, later on, in the in the later sixties, particularly in Camden, you had a resurgent interest in the idea of the street. Uh, and you've got architects like uh, Neve Brown, uh, who at Alexandra Road, extraordinary project in uh, in Camden, sort uh, of tried to reinvent the idea of of a street, so terraces of buildings rather than object buildings in space. So there've been various different sort of architectural and typological approaches to doing housing. And the most recent generation of of architects, and I include myself in that, uh, really are firmly kind of wedded to the idea of the street as being the basic building block of the city. And for me, let's get the circulation out into the into the street and and enjoy. What a street is, which belongs to everybody, it belongs to nobody. It's a fantastic. It brings people from different backgrounds, different ages, different social groups, economic groups together. And it plays its part in, in creating a kind of more coherent and cohesive uh, social environment.
3: Well, it's, it's great work that you're doing. Thank you so much for giving us sort of an overview of the situation, a bit of background on it. It's really appreciated. No, Peter, thank you. It's
4: really good. Thank you.
0: Ready to pop the question? In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
3: So with me now is Maria Vasilaku, who is former deputy mayor of Vienna. Hello, Maria. Hello. Um, I'm so excited to speak to you. Ed and I came to Vienna a few years ago and, and we... Uh, we met with Jürgen Czernofsky.
2: Oh, he's a really nice person.
3: He, really nice. And then let me tell you something. His office is by far the uh, the nicest office I've ever been in.
2: I don't know. I think mine could have been even nicer.
3: But... Oh, if only we'd come to see you instead. So, I mean, it's it's an incredibly impressive place for for any number of reasons. But particularly on this issue of housing. Vienna's it's topped the livable city charts for the past decade. Can you talk to us about what it is about the city's attitude to housing and, and the role it plays in people's lives that's contributed to that?
2: Well, if there is a DNA of cities, I would say that social housing corresponds 100% to Vienna's DNA. It is part of the city's history for a century now, and I'll just give you one figure. 62% of the Viennese already lived in either public housing units or social housing units. Affordability lies at the heart of almost everything we do in Vienna politically.
3: And, and do you think that's really a big part of the puzzle as, as to why Vienna has managed to steer clear of the housing crises that we see in so many cities here in the UK, but also, you know, th- throughout Europe and beyond?
2: Sure enough, it is. And I think also that it is uh, most probably the key factor why Vienna has managed uh, to reach the top of livability rankings uh, and to stay at the top for more than 10 years in a row now. So uh, practically, once again, I think that at the heart of everything the city does politically is social housing and public housing. And it's been highly successful, uh, not only as a social policy, but also as an economic policy, because you can imagine that whatever the Viennese don't spend uh, for their monthly rent, they will most probably spend on consumption and in local economy.
3: Because I think here and elsewhere, the high price of rents or buying property, it's almost seen as a a tax you pay for the economic and cultural benefits of living in a, a city. But that hasn't prevented or precluded any, any way Vienna from being such a vibrant city
2: no on the contrary mm. I would say that especially because social housing in Vienna is not directed towards low-income families solely but it is actually directed towards everybody practically you know middle class I would say even upper middle class will be included in the framework uh, because the the entry income limits are very high. So it is actually a policy that is, once again, addressing everybody practically. And it is combined with very high quality. So yes, it's architectural quality. By the way, just to give you an example, in many cases, we will even have swimming pools on the rooftops of social housing projects. Um, so, So it is a highly successful concept. And it is is also beloved by the people. Can I just go back to what you
3: said there about the the entry level in terms of income? Can you just explain that to me?
2: I would say that the the entry level right now corresponds approximately uh, to 200% of the median income. So it is very high again and it means that in order to enter social housing in Vienna, You can be practically anybody. I mean, only the really, really rich will not be entitled to it, which is perfectly sensible. But other than that, it is not something that is addressing only low-income families. And this is also one of the reasons, of the many reasons, why it is not attached to this typical stigma that it has, you know, in other parts of the world. But besides, again, it is combined with high architectural quality. It is, in a sense, luxurious, let's put it this way, because, I mean, having a a swimming pool on your rooftop and having large balconies and having wonderful parks in front of your building is not something that everybody can enjoy every day in other parts of the world. And I think that this is why it's so successful.
3: And aside from that section of the very wealthy that you mentioned, do the demographics of people living in social housing, does the spread of it mirror the
2: population? Yes, it does. It does. It has a a high social mix. And also, due to a history of 100 years, it is not concentrated in one place in Vienna, right? You can find it practically everywhere. So In a way, there are no areas in Vienna where only the low-income people live, and there are no areas where only the rich live. And I think that this very even socioeconomic distribution is also key to Vienna's success. But in the end, it is the result of a city that 100 years ago decided that we want housing to remain affordable for everybody. High quality housing. And that's stuck to this cradle. And you can see that whenever politics share commitment over long periods of time, then you can actually reach what others would experience as a miracle. But it's not a miracle. It's shared commitment.
3: You were the first Green deputy mayor of Vienna talk to me about the requirements when house builders come to you with proposals for social housing what what kind of elements and criteria must they meet and were you able to factor in low carbon eco factors into that were you able to make progress on that during your time <laughs>
2: Yes, we have made considerable progress on that, but I have to say that we never had to fight. I would say I experienced actually limited profit corporations coming to my office and having already their own ideas and their own proposals. What we have done was to look into the qualities of public space. Uh, to see to it that especially larger developments always have direct access to high-level public transport, that we have shared solutions for parking, that parking is at the edges of a new development and the focus lies on walking and cycling within the new area. And, of course, we would look into innovative solutions when it comes to energy production. Another colleague in government who was responsible for social housing, would be the one to be in charge of the housing competitions because you have the different limited profit corporations that will compete together with teams of architects for one piece of land. And the criteria here is economic sustainability, social sustainability, ecological sustainability, and uh, most notably architectural quality. And I think that what is also very important to know is that Vienna does not focus solely on projects. It is about areas. So we're in the privileged position of disposing of several former railway areas in quite central parts of the city that are now being converted into new urban quarters. So what we do is that we look into it that at least 50%, and in some cases even more, of the new urban quarter is subsidised housing. So these are areas that are, have a high social mix and are full of life.
3: So you t- talk about building new units, new new housing. Has, has there ever been in Vienna this thing that we've seen in the here in the UK where what was social housing stock has been sold into private hands? Is that a factor?
2: No, this is not a factor. I would say what is public housing, these are units that are owned by the city itself has remained public housing ever since. And when it comes to the so-called social housing, it is owned by limited profit housing corporations that are owned mostly by unions. Even the city owns several of them, or is at least partially owner of several of them.
3: I must be right in thinking then there's Quite a cross party political consensus on this. It must be such a popular uh, aspect of Viennese life that it, it doesn't matter uh, which party is in power at the time, N- nobody's going to mess with it too significantly.
2: Yes, I think that there is consensus there. And I don't know if everybody believes deeply in this consensus, but I would never advise anybody who wants to enter. And be successful in Viennese politics, you know, to to start fighting social housing. That would not be the best of all ideas.
3: It's, it strikes me that if we were to colonize Mars, like Vienna's easy to replicate. How easy is it when you look at cities like cities here in the UK with very different models and very some would say a, a neglect of social housing over decades? How is it easy? Do you think it would be to transition? to something closer resembling what you have there?
2: I think that you need to be creative. I think at the heart of Lessons from Vienna lies the idea, or let's say, realizing that subsidized housing is profitable. This is a very robust, very solid business case. But there are three pillars that go with it. Pillar number one is the land has to be affordable. If the land is unaffordable, then forget about social housing. So you have to look into, you know, how do we use the land reserves that we already own? And if they're not enough, or if they are at parts of the city where we believe that it's not such a good idea to build something there, then you need an active land policy. But this is very tough to explain, you know, in a in a short po- podcast. You have to do another one with me. Yeah. Another okay. time on
3: that. We'll we'll save that for the sequel. Right.
2: So the, 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 the second pillar is actually limited profit housing corporations and subsidies on the basis of low interest loans. And the third pillar is the height of the rent should always be the result of the costs for construction and land. So If you have people who still can't afford it, although it is highly affordable, then you have to give them individual grants so that they can afford. And the combination of all three leads to actually, once again, a very robust business case that can be replicated in all other parts of the world. Perhaps not like this, but still.
3: Well, I feel you've just given us the secret recipe. (laughs) Thank you so much. I mean it, j- it just sounds incredible and, um, and Vienna is such an interesting city for so many reasons, not not least this. This is a major part of it. Uh, Maria, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
3: And finally from Vienna to Brighton and Hove where we're joined by a founding member of the Bunker Housing Cooperative, Martin Holmes. Hello. Hello. Thanks for being with us. And I wonder if we could just start by talking about Brighton and Hove and What it is about the property market there that led you to set up the Bunker Housing Co-op?
5: Yes, well, I suppose you could summarise Brighton as being pretty pretty much like London by the sea. It's what you would call a superheated property market. Prices are rising, basically across rented um, and for sale. And we also have a second homes issue and we have lots of homes being converted to Airbnb. There's lots of pressures there um, on, on housing, and of course it's the people who have the least power in that situation who are the ones that suffer from it. So the reason why we kind of went on to um, create Bunker Housing Cooperative is we were all a group of individuals who were all self-employed um, and working either part-time or full-time uh living in private rented accommodation which is becoming increasingly expensive plus a lot of the housing stock in brighton isn't really fit for purpose i mean it's it's old it's victorian which looks nice but you know it's damp and it's drafty and it's expensive and all of those things and even though we were all working we're not in a position to buy our own homes um even even if we were able to afford them it's very difficult to get a mortgage if you are self-employed um and also not in dire straits to, to be eligible for, for social housing. So it started off as really just a pragmat- pragmatic solution. You know, what can we do? Is there another way that we can basically secure ourselves some quality, affordable housing? And we're prepared to work for it. You know, we're all quite energetic and um, passionate people. So we thought we, we could put that in, into doing something else. So we started um, a housing co-op.
3: And were, were any of you in the, the world of housing? Was it something that was alien territory to you?
5: Yeah, I would say it was pretty much alien territory. We had kind of acquaintances who were in the co-op movement who lived already in housing co-ops um, because there are, there are quite a lot of housing co-ops in Brighton. But we ourselves, no, we were artists. A couple of us worked in the building trade. Um, I was working as a painter and decorator and my next door neighbour, he was as a general builder. But yeah, not, not in housing as such,
3: so so how how did it work then you make this decision what happens next
5: well, we kind of made the decision to do it. And then, I mean, it was a bit, it was like, we, we kind of call it our Lord of the Rings moment. It's like, we're road. We'll, oh, we'll take the ring, but we don't know where, we don't know how, <laughs> and we don't know what to do. So, so but, I mean, luckily, the, like I said, there is a bit of a history of housing co-ops in Brighton and Hove. Um, and one of the kind of uh, result of that, there was a voluntary organisation called Chiba, which is Cooperative Housing in Brighton and Hove. So they're a group of co-operators who live in existing co-ops that met up once a month um, to kind of give advice to each other, mutual support, kind of help each other out with different things. And we went along to that and so said to them, you know, what do we do, basically? How, how do we do this thing that we want to do? And they were really helpful and people were very generous of their time. The process is that you register as a housing co-op, you become a legal entity um, you set a bank account, things like that. You have meetings, you kind of draft your constitution, you have your manifesto, all that kind of stuff. There's, so there's sort of the technical side of it. And then there's the political side of it. The reasons for becoming a co-op is that a co-op as a collective, as a cooperative, as a registered body, we could do things that we couldn't do on our own. So for example, the co-op could take out a mortgage rather than us having individual mortgages.
3: And was that was that building new property or was it acquiring an existing property?
5: No, so our whole thing from the beginning was to build. So we are a self-build housing co-op. So we self-build our own social housing.
3: Tell us some more about that. Tell us how many houses have you built today? What are your plans for the future? What have you learned about that process?
5: Yeah, well, that's a a short, some short answers followed by a very long one. <laughs> yeah. We started off as just two families, and we actually worked, not in partnership, but alongside the local authorities, so Brighton and Hove City Council, who provide us with pieces of land, small parcels of land. They're called infill sites, so they're bits of leftover land that were, did, were left over from uh, previous housing estate developments or things like that. So, so far we've built two, two, three bedroom homes, um, and we've got another three, four sites in Brighton. The biggest one's got four homes on it, another one's got three, another one's got two, and we use innovative building. Techniques, so we project manage it ourselves basically. So we kind of run the thing. We work alongside the architects to co design the buildings and we raise some of the finance and then we work together to project manage it. They're eco homes, they're built of cross laminated timber, so they're wooden homes, super insulated, triple glazed with um, solar panels so they're low energy they're
3: beautiful i was looking at your website they're beautiful if people like property porn then you know i I would recommend (laughs) your website just from from that point of view and and given that this started off out of a, a of a need or a want to own a property in a difficult market what what does a cooperative mean beyond that once you have housed those initial members it's not the same as being a, a property developer. How does it grow as an entity?
5: Yeah. So at the moment, we're kind of growing in pace with, with the number of sites that we have and the number of homes that we can deliver. But I think what it means, I mean, there is a fundamental difference. So we collectively own the properties, we don't individually own them. So we are what is called a fully mutual housing co-op. So it doesn't cost you anything to join. Well, there's a nominal pound you pay when you join, and when you leave, you get your pound back. Um, and the co-op owns the buildings, but we are the landlords and the tenants, and that's what gives us that kind of autonomy and that power in a field where we didn't have any before. You know. And
3: and what does it ask of members? Uh, you know, what what if you want to live in one of these homes, mm. but maybe you, due to personal circumstances, don't don't have huge amounts of time to dedicate to the co-op does that exclude you from participating
5: no not at all it's sort of each each to do what they can really um we have at different times there's members who have more time to give or less time to give we also have members who are less physically abled we have members who are who are busy at certain times we've had members with long-term illnesses We are volunteers, essentially, and the membership runs it. We have monthly meetings and we have roles within that. But we also raise money to pay for support, essentially. So, you know, it's not we don't do everything. We run the core business. It's a little bit more involved than just being a tenant. But I guess the, the payoff is that you get to be the landlord and the tenant, I suppose, is the simple way of putting it.
3: And obviously, it's, it's a really interesting thing that you have created, and that, that you you know you seem like really enthused and engaged with. But what do you think about the circumstances that's forced you to having to create the co-op to live affordably?
5: Yes, I mean, it started off for us as being quite a pragmatic solution, but it rapidly was a politicizing process. I think that as as we kind of got involved in in the process and butted up against the system that's kind of external to you isn't it when you're just a consumer but once you kind of, sort of dive into it and things start to unravel I think you suddenly realize how it's a very difficult situation but it's also quite difficult to do things differently and I think for me personally you know when, when we're talking about social housing there are there are problems with it in the way that it's perceived I think the way that the way that people look at what what is it for and who is it for you know the idea of municipal or or council housing has been through the ringer a bit with bad, with bad publicity for quite a long time, almost deliberately, so you could say. And I think that the thing that, so cooperative housing kind of fits within what's called community-led housing at the moment in the UK or collaborative housing throughout Europe. And, you know, that's really about ordinary citizens, I suppose you could say, forming partnerships with local government, national government, and or how, uh, other housing providers, so housing associations, to do something for themselves that isn't being done for them. And I think that th- th- there are lots of people who spoke to who would be really happy to live in a, in a council house if it was available, but there just aren't any. I know that councils are doing their best, but it, they're operating as well under difficult circumstances. But I think as far as kind of looking positively at the future of, of, of social housing, I think community led housing or collaborative housing it, in those partnerships, there's something there that can, that can really work with national support. From, around policies and funding, with local support around land and finance. You know, it, it, it can basically re-democratise a process that is very undemocratic and very unfair, and, and, and at the same time kind of extend the agency of both the state and the citizen.
3: One thing I've been wondering about is, uh, you know, a a creative solution to a problem is something that is not against the stereotype of how we might think about Brighton and Hove. Is there a wider movement in different parts of the country? Yes,
5: absolutely. One can look at the Confederation of Cooperative Homes, and they are the umbrella body for co-ops. And if you look at the membership of... Of that organization you'll see that it, it's right across the country and um, a good example of another place with a lot of carts is liverpool and there's a very different makeup there i think there are movements all you know through the north of england and birmingham for example you know that yeah and there are and they do touch different demographics kind of based on their history really you know, it's one of those things where you know it's 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 changing that idea of of what co-ops are and who they're for, you know, we're, we're not we're not just all yogurt weaving hippies. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, not not that we want to. Yeah, uh, you know, we're very supportive <laughs> of, of yogurt weaving and hippies,
5: <laughs> of course. So are we
3: we have a thing on the podcast called the uh, Jeffocracy, which is it's, it's a utopia with Ed installed mm. as a, a puppet prime minister. If we go all in on housing co-ops, what could government do to support housing co-ops?
5: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, housing co-ops have been around for quite a long time. And it was, you know, 1850, I think the first co-op housing was built, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, right? So it's been through various iterations, and each iteration has kind of had varying forms of um, government support, um, both here and abroad. And I think recently there's been the community-led housing programme, which has been great because it, it's kind of invested money and time into both the kind of structures around to support it, but also grant funding we are in the process of becoming a, a registered provider of social housing. And at the moment, it's, it's great. I mean, they're really supportive. But it's, again, it's not a system that's designed for the kind of organisation we are. In other countries, it's a self-regulating thing. So I think allowing the kind of movement to sort of regulate itself, but with government oversight, so policies, so funding. And then on a local level, I think with, with, with um, local councils helping with um, the sourcing of land, is a big one. I mean, we're we're lucky enough to be in in a conversations at the moment with with the local authority who have been really brilliantly supportive, Brighton and Hove City Council, um, about um, on lending from the local authority.
3: Well, it's a great story, and as I said before, I urge people to uh, go and look at the homes you've created and are creating mm. on your website. More power to your elbow in occupying uh, more space on the monopoly board of Brighton and Hove <laughs> for uh, bunker housing, co-ops and co-ops like it. Martin Holmes, thanks so much for talking to us.
5: Thank you, Jeff.
2: Thank you very much. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
1: Whoa. Well,
3: We're in the outro. And uh, in, in the interregnum between the intro and the outro, yeah. Ed has managed to get his phone working. He sent me a photo of the dish. That was I your mean, It reason. looks good, doesn't it, that? It. It doesn't. I think like I could like... put it on Instagram. Actually, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I'd maybe try and disguise the state of your induction hob there. It's got a lot of stains on it. People will be commenting on that. Do you think the induction hob's the problem? It just looks like there's a lot of stuff been smeared on it. What is this on the bottom left? Is that safe? Is that some kind of hazard? Well, not if it's not on. Okay. The grouting on your tiles is uh, is nicely done. though, no, I'll say that. I'm, try- I'm trying to be
1: nice. I know, but I don't think... They- I'm
3: damned if I do and damned if I don't
1: with you. You are, you are. But, you know, I love you, really. Do you want a TV recommendation? I'm not giving you one for a while. I really do, yeah. Have you heard of
3: Bad Sisters? No. It's on Apple TV. It's Sharon Horgan of Polling and Catastrophe fame. It's kind of a Who Done It. I think about five sisters, I lose count, um, who are trying to bump off a brother-in-law Wow and in fact do and you're you kind of the story's told backwards um, that's very entertaining It's not like too dark It's not No it's it's not too dark at all It's not right. gory Fun um, And it's, it's quite funny Okay Good. at times as well. It's good. set in Ireland. There's a great Swedish good. actor in it called Klaus Bang, um, who's been in good. a bunch of stuff. I think I think you'll like it. I'm pretty confident you'll like that. You have such a good eye for my taste. So. And then I think that I'm not sure... I, I'm reasonably confident is... Am I Being Unreasonable on BBC iPlayer? Which is, do you know who Daisy Mae Cooper is? Did you ever come across a comedy called This Country? No. She's incredibly talented, very funny. And again, this isn't quite a comedy, but it is funny at times. And it's difficult to describe. But it's another one of these which, which opens with quite a twist and then you're working backwards from it that's incredibly helpful
1: thank you there you go and i will be right back at you the the responder which came out earlier this year with martin freeman about a police officer on the edge which we started watching
3: on the edge you say Mm -hmm. sounds good um i should thank our guests shouldn't i should uh thanks to pete barber maria vasilaku and martin holmes Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. We're supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents, and the artwork was designed by...
1: Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloydkins, And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful.